Our story that we're looking at this evening is the story of the Apostle Paul, or Saul, if you will, okay? Um, this past week, as I was thinking about that, I had to ask myself the question, did God change his name from Saul to Paul? And I think I always would have answered the question yes before I studied this past week. But it, it, it's actually kind of fascinating because um, throughout the text, even after his conversion, he's referred to as Saul many times. And I did a little studying on this this past week, and it appears that just like with Matthew and Levi, sometimes people can have a dual name. And it seemed that Saul seemed to refer to his Hebrew side, and Paul seemed to refer more to his Greek Roman side. And so it was an interesting study. All that is just literally something I had to get off my head for a second. I don't know about you, but for me, Saul to Paul is kind of helpful in how his life was changed, though, right? I still kind of feel feel that whenever I hear the name, whenever I see the name Saul and I see the name Paul, because it shows what Christ kind of did. At least that works for me. But it was an interesting study this past week. But let's talk about change for a minute. How many here find change difficult? Anyone? Anyone struggle with it? I've talked about this a couple times before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But I tell you, I used to like change. I used to embrace change, used to think, yeah, let's change everything, right? But the more I've gotten older, the more I've recognized that I actually like routine. I like familiarity. I like it when I know how things are going to work and what's going to happen. And making simple changes to your lifestyle is one thing. But what happens when your life changes in such a way where it actually causes you to rethink things. And, and, and it actually causes you to live differently. You see, psychologists, and I brought this up before, often refer to those kind of changes as paradigm shifts. As times in your life where you thought something was this way, it, you were certain, and then new information appeared, or new ways of doing things appeared, and all of a sudden, what you once thought was so certain was all of a sudden different. Example, people once thought you could fall off the earth, right? And then we learned about gravity. Um, today, uh, as I was listening to music, I was talking to my speaker to change songs, to give me information. You know, 50 years ago, can you imagine what people would have thought, you know, of the idea that we could just talk to speakers and music and facts would just start spouting out at any time, right? You know, if you would have proposed such an idea 50 years ago, you probably would have been sent for an assessment or something, right? And, and that's just how it is. Things change sometimes. You see, at best, moving into new ways of thinking, for most of us, is probably best done as baby steps. And it's just slowly moving into a new process. And it seems as though to fully embrace something new, we probably need some help outside of ourselves to do so. And so with that in mind... Let's look at the life of Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul, to many of us, as he was known. And so where do we first hear about Saul, Paul, in scriptures? Well, the very first thing we hear is found in Acts chapter 7 and verse 57. And we read this. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed out at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. This is the story of Stephen. And a man who was professing his faith and was now being persecuted for his faith, literally in this moment. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats and f at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. And so immediately, this is literally where we are introduced to Saul in the scriptures. The first time we hear about this man named Saul in the scriptures is found here where he's giving approval to the killing of a Christian named Stephen, who was martyred for his faith in this moment. And Saul didn't just disagree with Christians and what they believed. He didn't just disagree. He didn't just have some minor, you know, problems with them. But he literally took it to another level. And he wanted to rid the earth of them. And especially their message that they were proclaiming. And he did it sometimes in means of force. He did it sometimes, not, not, not through words, but literally through the sword. You see, in Acts chapter 22, we read these words about Paul. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of, someone pronounced it, Silica, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamma Leal. Oh, that's important. And was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. You see, Paul was a Roman citizen. And he was trained by literally one of the best of the best. And that teacher was Gamaliel. Okay? And he was taught by Gamaliel. He didn't necessarily follow the same stream of thinking later on, but this is who he was taught by. This is who mentored him, if you could say it. This is who kind of, you know, sort of brought him up in the Jewish teachings. And Paul had a background of being taught by one of the best known teachers out there. And so there were two school, two predominant schools of thought that kind of influenced how people lived out their Jewish faith. And they were taught by two rabbis. One rabbi's name was Rabbi Hillel, and the other rabbi's name was Rabbi Shammai. I'm going to make sense of this in a second, okay? Just stick with me on this. Rabbi Hillel taught a faith that influenced people to trust God to make things right and to take care of things, more of a personal faith, more of a liturgical faith. And Rabbi Hillel is Gamaliel's teacher. This is who, this is the school of thought of who he would have came through. Let me give you an example of something Gamaliel did. Acts chapter 5 here. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death, meaning Christians. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thedius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so Gamaliel took this truth. He took this teaching that, you know, if God's in this, we're not going to be able to stop it anyways. But if it's not a God, it's just going to fall apart. 
So why don't you just trust God to work this out? Why don't you trust God to work things out? And this was the school of thought that Saul's teacher, Gamaliel, would advocate for. Almost like a live and let live is how one commentator put it, because God's going to sort it out anyways. And, it wasn't, and if it wasn't of him, it would fail anyways. But becoming zealous for the faith was the teaching of Rabbi Shammah, the, uh, Shammah, the other teaching out there. And that meant taking matters into your own hands and even using the sword and shedding blood if necessary. And the way of zeal was the path of Saul of Tarsus. And in Acts chapter 7, as he's introduced, we see him there giving approval to the death of a Christian, Stephen. You see, he, 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 he kind of left the teachings of even his own mentor to an extent and adopted the way of zeal. And he was known for persecuting the followers of Christ. And so this is how he's introduced. This is how Saul of Tarsus comes on the scene. We're introduced to him. He's persecuting Christians. He's giving approval to their death. And then something happens in Acts chapter 9. He wants to pursue this. He wants to keep this going. He wants to make sure that this Christian message is stopped. Now let's just start reading. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might make them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. It's probably more animated than that, okay? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink Anything, And so this is pretty fascinating stuff happening here because Saul, it says at the beginning of that, of that portion I just read, is literally on his way to Damascus. And his purpose is to get clearance to be able to take the followers of Jesus that he encounters that he could take them prisoner. He's going to the high priest to get clearance that he can arrest anyone who's out there declaring the truth of Jesus. And he wanted to, Saul wanted to end this movement. He wanted to play a part in its demise. And now he's going to the great high priest looking for approval, looking for clearance. And it's on this exact trip where he's going to oppose the work of Christ, that Christ is about to do a work in his life. <laughs> that Christ is about to get a hold of this gentleman. That Christ is about to do something so unexpected that even the original hearers couldn't believe it. You see, you want to talk about a plot shift. You want to talk about a surprise turn in a story. This was, this was shocking. This was truly an amazing work of God to look down at the one who was opposing him and actively working against him, someone who was actively opposing his message, and to decide, make a decision, that's the guy I'm going to use. That's who I'm going to use to carry out my message to the Gentiles. You see, how many of us are able to see people, to see the best in people who even mildly annoy us, right? 
Sometimes it's challenging, right? Sometimes it's challenging to see the best in people who even just mildly annoy us, much less persecute you, much less try to destroy you. And the only way to describe what God is doing here in the life of Saul of Tarsus is found in one word, and that word is grace. That word is grace. He's undeserving of what's about to happen here. And God does something absolutely amazing. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple known, or sorry, named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And we have to pause here for, for a moment because, I mean, you know, God's given Ananias some instructions on what to do. And even though he's hearing from God, the, many, the minute he finds out who God is calling him to go to, Ananias has some questions, just like I think the rest of us would, right? Just like I think the rest of us would. Like, God, are, are you sure, God, it's this guy? You know, he, he has authority to arrest us. He has, he's trying to destroy the message. He's trying to destroy your way. God, are you sure you got the right guy? You, you, you know what this Saul has been doing to your people, right? I mean, I think many of us in this situation would probably pause and wonder what is going on here. What's happening? Let's keep reading. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. That's pretty quick, eh? And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And we see the, the, the conversion of a man, someone who was just recently known for condemning Christians, for persecuting them, for trying to arrest them, for hurting them. He's now a part of the family of God. And not only that, but Saul was God's chosen instrument, the scriptures tell us, to carry out this mission to the Gentiles. Chosen, meaning that this wasn't just some random encounter, but, but God had purpose for this man who once persecuted followers of the way. And he himself would now live and endure such persecution himself for following Jesus. You see, a man who was once zealous for his faith tradition is about to experience the opposite of that himself. Let's keep reading. Acts chapter 9. And take it up here in verse 20. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name, this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by 
by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him night and lowered him in a basket, took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. You know, that's probably how some would think. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned this, Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, and then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. You see, again, the church seems suspicious of the motives here, but Saul was like literally just walking the walk, right? He was living the talk that he had here, and God was about to send him on many journeys to many people in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. He'd already started speaking about the gospel of Jesus, and the journey that he was going to face, it wasn't going to be easy. There was going to be difficulties. There was going to be challenges. He was going to meet some of the things he had done before he met Jesus. He was going to meet some of that himself. If you just keep reading in the book of Acts, and we just don't have time to read the whole you know, book tonight, you'll discover the challenges, the persecutions, the difficulties that he faced. And yet he was faithful. And yet he was faithful to, to what God had called him to do. Because Paul's life was changed, amen? Paul's life was changed. And he began to lead and shepherd others. And he wrote to many of the churches. And those letters are much of what comprises much of the New Testament scriptures for us today. And so what can we see in some of those letters that he wrote to the churches that tell us a bit about his life? That tell us a bit about the, the change he experienced? That tell us a, a bit about his purpose for living and his, his newfound priorities and his new outlook on life? Well, let me give you three points tonight. Three things that I think we learned through Paul in this conversion experience. And number one was that Paul relied on the strength of God. Paul relied on the strength of Christ. He relied on Christ's strength. He didn't do this all on his own, but he relied on Jesus. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And for the, for the Apostle Paul, this was new. This was brand new. This was literal life transformation. He'd never be the same again. It wasn't just that, you know, he started doing this once a week or he started going here once a week. His whole existence was changed. He was transformed. You see, Paul didn't just embrace a new philosophy or a new discipline, but his life was literally transformed. The old way of living to the new way of living. And what once had been maybe preferable, good, or desirable, now paled in comparison to what he had encountered, or rather who he had encountered. This wasn't just some minor shift in thinking here, but everything had changed. The paradigm had shifted, and Paul was living a new life in Christ Jesus, the one whom he once persecuted his people. And it needs to be stressed 
that the Apostle Paul wasn't doing this in his own strength. He wasn't doing this because he was so powerful, but he was doing it in Christ. He lived his life in Christ. Galatians 2.20, he says this. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the life he lived, he lived in Christ, and Christ lived in him. And he relied on Christ. He relied on Christ for strength. And so Saul, now known as Paul, was not doing this on his own strength, but, it, but he was clear as day. What you see is Christ living in me. And Paul relied on God's strength. And it wasn't about what he can do. And I think this is good for us to remember. I think this is encouraging for us as those who, who follow Jesus to remember. Because I'd argue that we live in a society sometimes that's quite, you know, very self-reliant or, or, or self-sufficient, the society we live in. Where we think it's on us to fix our own problems or to take care of ourselves. And asking for help or depending on something or someone outside of ourselves to many would be considered, you know, humbling at best and, and, and embarrassing at worst. But I remember when I first came to faith, when I first started following Jesus, I thought it was all about all the good things I can do, all the good things I can muster up. And I tried so hard on my own strength. And I lived a life not fully understanding what grace was. But I weighed myself down with guilt. Anytime I slipped up, anytime I failed, anytime I missed the mark, I was tough on myself. And I failed to recognize what Paul lived by here. And that's this, that we can and need to rely on his strength. We rely on God's strength as we seek to live for him. We don't do this on our own strength. We do it in him. We need his help. We are needy before him. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talked about this struggle he had. And he just, some of us can relate to this. He says, you know, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I, what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, I no longer consider myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Anyone relate? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body? that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, for the Apostle Paul, he even recognized, you know, sometimes I want to do this and I feel pulled here and I think we could all relate with that. Anyone, right? We have those moments where you desire to do one thing, you want to do another but thanks be to God who can deliver us, amen? Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by relying on him, relying on his strength, looking to him. You see, the Apostle Paul was very realistic about his struggle to do good when the temptation to do wrong was always there. And he writes out here for the church what I think a lot of us have experienced, that the desire to do good and yet our desire to please ourselves and do what we want, they kind of war with each other sometimes and they live in tension, but in, in the end, his victory was found in Christ Jesus as Lord. 
And it wasn't something that would be achieved in his best efforts, but rather he relied on God and on his power that was at work in his life, okay? Paul relied on the strength of Christ and how he lived and even how he faced troubles and persecution of which he was going to face many. You could, read, you could read lists of these things that Paul went through. But in it all, his strength wasn't self-reliance. It wasn't self-sufficiency. But it was the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul relied on Jesus. Number two, second thing I think we learned from the Apostle Paul is that we are not defined by our achievements. We're not defined by our achievements. You see, we live in a world where we are tempted to define ourselves sometimes by what we do or what we've accomplished. Oftentimes when you meet someone, you get asked the question sometimes, you know, you introduce yourself, and usually the first thing someone will ask you is, what do you do? And what they're asking you is, well, what do you do for work? Or how, how do you earn an income? Or, 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 or how, you know, who are you in that sense, right? And too often there's a temptation, I think, sometimes to define ourselves. You can, you can flip to the next slide, please. By what we do, accomplish, achieve, or accumulate. And while the tendency may be present in the world we live in, the scriptures never instruct us to define ourselves by those very things. We define ourselves differently. And for the believer, our identity isn't found in what we do or accomplish, but rather in Christ Jesus, in whom we live and in whom lives in us. Our identity, first and foremost, is always found in him. Amen? And under this old way of life, very few people had the resume that Saul of Tarsus had. He was accomplished. He did lots very few people had accomplished and checked all the boxes like he did. And he had bragging rights and credentials, if anyone ever did. And yet something shifted when he met Jesus. Something changed his priorities, changed what really mattered. It turned what once had value into little value. And, and, and things he never maybe thought about before had immense value to him. They were priceless. Suddenly what was once very important had probably lost its value. And this wasn't just some minor shift in thinking. This was a, 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 a transformed brand new life. Look at what he says to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 3 to 14. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying, don't put any confidence in your flesh. But look what he does here. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... And he's going to list his accomplishments here. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, remember that word? Persecuting the church. As for righteousness, right, righteousness based on the law, faultless. And he lays it out, and he tells, you know, this is my resume. This, these are the things I've accomplished. But verse 7, but wherever, whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of 
faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You see, for the Apostle Paul, he knew that in that former way of life, man, did he have accomplishments. Man, did he check the boxes. He, he, he had done everything. He had bragging rights over anyone who wanted to challenge him, and yet, when he came to know Jesus, it meant nothing to him. Because what meant something to him was pleasing him. What meant something to him was knowing him. What meant the most to him was loving him and, and loving others and, and teaching his word and, and going out and doing things for Christ. His life had shifted. His accomplishments all of a sudden were, they were, they were you know, he should be proud. He worked hard for them. But they meant nothing at the end of the day in that old way of living. What mattered to him was Christ first. And what he did for Christ. Number three, the last thing I want us to see from the Apostle Paul's life. And this, to me, I think is the, was probably my favorite part of Paul's story. Is that no one is beyond God's reach and love. Amen? No one is beyond God's reach and love. Ajith Fernando, in his commentary on the book of Acts, I was reading it this past week. He said this. Um, I'll just go to the next slide, please. Another significant inference from the fact that God takes the initiative to save the least likely people, such as Saul the persecutor, is that we cannot pronounce anyone hopeless as far as conversion is concerned. Such reality should encourage us to dream about, pray for, and work towards the conversion of resistant people and enemies of the gospel. You see, Saul's conversion, it shows us that God has written, hasn't written anyone off. Amen? And that he loves everyone. And he desires that all come to a saving faith. Second Peter, Peter said it like this. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Worship team, feel free to come back up to the stage. But the Apostle Paul's story reminds us that as we live here on the earth, we don't lose hope. You see, our job isn't to judge people. God doesn't need us to be his general managers, right? Um, but we're to love and pray and share the gospel, even with those who seem impossible to reach. Because the power of God can do immeasurably more than all we ever ask or imagine. Amen? And we see that in Paul's life. We see that gospel change in his life. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, um, it's a couple slides over, says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And listen to what Paul says here. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. How many of us are thankful for God's patience today? Anyone? Right? We're thankful for his patience. Amen? And we can trust that wherever we find ourselves today, wherever, that God loves you. And that God has plans for you. 
And that our behavior doesn't disqualify us from receiving his grace. Our past doesn't disqualify us. We need to recognize that it's never really ever been about us. It's always been about him and his goodness to us. And so maybe you've been following Jesus and you felt this tension between, I want to do what God wants and I, I keep doing what I want. Anyone been there? Knowing that you need to surrender to him and maybe just rely on him today afresh and seek him. Maybe you recognize that you put too much trust in the, the things and accomplishments here on earth and that you need to put far more trust in who, who Christ says you are and how he defines you. You see, for those of us who are experiencing some struggle or some tension on the journey, the good news in all this, I think, is, is that, you know, he might not be where you want to be right now, right? But aren't you thankful that you weren't where you used to be, Right? You might not be exactly where you want to be, but thank God you aren't where you used to be. And if God's done a work in your life, remember that he hasn't stopped loving you. <laughs> he hasn't stopped working on you. There are new possibilities and opportunities in Christ every day. Amen?